Welcome to the Life in the Stocks podcast, ladies and gentlemen. My name's Matt Stocks. I'm the host, and the show features unedited, in-depth, candid conversations with a wide range of musicians, actors, comedians, and creatives. If you're not already, be sure to subscribe to Life in the Stocks on your favorite podcast platform. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and indeed all major podcast platforms. Be sure to give me a follow on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok as well, at MattStocksDJ. That way you can keep up to date with all of my live Q&A dates, my DJ performances, and of course, who's coming up on the show as well. But without further ado, let's crack on with the show, shall we? Here we go. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. There we go, we're in business. All right. Sounding good. Um, well, I haven't seen you since I launched this podcast. That's how long it's been. Well, that's how long it's been since my... Well, I saw you last in Los Angeles. Yeah, but that was 2014, which which was three two. years before I launched this. Okay, but I mean, my well, my last UK tour was 2016. Yeah, again, just before I launched. Yeah. That was so the last time we saw each so other. Four years. Four years. Coming up on five, I'd say. Yeah. Wow. It feels a lot longer as well. It doesn't feel that long. It feels like I just seen you yesterday. Does it? Yeah. Well, that's, that's the sign of a good friendship. Exactly. Connected over the sea. Um, we should start with your new film that you're over here promoting, Adverse. Yeah. Um, you've gotten to work with my all-time acting hero. Oh, my, and who might that be? My number one dream podcast guest, <laughs> Mickey Rourke. I honestly think he is just about one of the best to ever do it. Um, I first saw his work in, what's the Rodriguez film? Once Upon a Time in Mexico was the first time I'd seen Mickey Rourke act. And I was like, who's this guy that just appears with a chihuahua in every <laughs> scene? He was just this really enigmatic, fascinating character. And then Sin City followed shortly after that where he was just an absolute powerhouse as Marv, and I became obsessed with him. Went down the rabbit hole, saw like the Pope of Greenwich Village, Rumblefish, Angel Heart, all these amazing performances he's put in over the years. Um, 
the dude fascinates me. So I want to go in and get your first-hand account of what it was like doing scenes and working with a giant of acting like that. Yeah. Um, well, just to put a, a little bit of context uh, of how I'm promoting the film over here, um, we just had our world premiere in uh, in Porto, in Portugal, uh, at Fantasporto. Uh, it was the 40th anniversary of Fantasporto. And it's a festival that has a lot of prestige, doesn't it? It does. Um, it has. We we all we not only were selected to to be in competition at the festival, but we were also selected to open the festival, which is the highest honor I think that you can get. So regardless of what awards we win or don't win, uh, opening the festival was the prestige because they've had. We are following in the footsteps of greatness. Coen Brothers' um, No Country for Old Men I and, saw was one of the films that yeah, opened Yeah, and it. that film went on to uh, get eight nominations and win four Oscars. Uh, Bong Joon-ho premiered The Host there. Um, I think uh, Martin Scorsese premiered Raging Bull there, which we wow. just found out. Um, James Cameron premiered a film there. Uh, Guillermo del Toro premiered a film. I mean, just the list goes on and on. Uh, Ridley Scott, I think, premiered Blade Runner there. No way. So yeah. 40 years of kind of legit hits yeah so uh yeah we 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 had that honor and and had our world premiere and it's one of those things where maybe you haven't heard of it but it's rated uh as one of the top 25 festivals in the world so yeah adverse is the name of the film and i um play the main protagonist and mickey rourke plays the main antagonist and, and that uh, is the main antagonist right there it it really it truly is um he he actually, when he read the script, he dropped out of another film to do our movie. Because he was that drawn to the character in the yeah, story. Wow. Yeah, uh, I don't want to give too much away, but um, he really saw a lot of his brother in the character based upon some of the challenges that the character has. Uh, and again, I don't want to give too much away. Um, for the film. No no spoilers. We've only just had our world premiere. We don't have our release date yet, and we're doing the uh, the festival circuit. But he really was drawn to the character. It was very... It's a very layered character. It's not your typical bad guy. Yeah, who because does that's, bad my, that's my kind of sad issue with a lot of Mickey Rourke's work in... Well, not even just recent years, throughout his career, is I think he's very often been relegated to quite two-dimensional roles because of the figure that he is within that industry and I guess some of the bridges that he's burnt over the years. And I feel like a lot of the time his talent way surpasses the roles that he's given. And he always brings magic to the role, even if it is a fairly restricted, do you know what I mean, simplistic character that he's playing. So then it's always great when you see him with, you know, a role like the wrestler, right? Well, which has so much, as you say, layers and weight and depth. And, and some of the critics are saying that this is his best performance since that movie. Wow. So, um, and, and Mickey, he, he brought it all. It wasn't like, he wasn't just phoning it in every day. He was meeting with, uh, with the director and, and talking about the scenes for at least, you know, half hour, an hour before they would even come on set and they had reworked, you know, certain things to, you know, add those layers in even more than what was, what was, uh, what was written and just kind of delve into that. Um, and you know, he really emoted uh, in the role and it was quite amazing to watch tell me Someone, about your first scene with him my uh my first scene is uh actually we that you well, shot. we that we shot yeah the the first scene in the film is 
uh, my character plays a rideshare driver with a questionable past. Um, and so I, I first take him on a ride as just a, a client uh, before I really know anything about him or he knows anything about me or anything. Uh, but the first scene that we, we shoot is later on we meet up again in the film. And at that point, um, th- already a lot of, uh, of things have happened uh, in, in the story. And basically my life is kind of on the line uh, as his character... Um, you know, again, I'm trying not to give too <laughs> much to away. Skirt yeah, the details. I'm skirting around the details of the story because I don't want to give away the story. Uh, but but it's a very intense neo noir scene where Just you're not you sure one on one. You're not sure. Well, don't be looking at my notes, Thomas. No, that's fine. I'm not looking at your notes. <laughs> I mean, there's one guy like you know dead in the corner already, and then his sidekick is with him. But the scene is really between the two of us, and you're not sure if he's going to kill me or hire me. Wow. So that's the first scene that we shot and he was throwing curveballs at me and I was just trying to, to keep up. And, um, at one point he threw a line at me and I'll, I'll, I'll never forgive myself for this one. Cause he, he asked me, it's not in the, it didn't end up making it in the script, but he ad libbed, uh, what's your mother's name? And I couldn't remember <laughs> Penelope Ann Miller's character's name in that moment. Cause I wasn't expecting the question. And in that moment I realized Man, I have no business being an actor. I didn't even know my own mom's name. That should have like I should have had that. Should have been in that in the pocket. Yeah, he he proved to me that uh, he could dance circles around me right then. Uh, but I still stayed into the scene uh, and tried to hold my own as best I could. But um, did he vibe off you? Did he connect with you as an actor? Did you feel like there was a a magic happening? There was, I think, after the first after the first cut. Like we really didn't get introduced uh, prior to that scene. And after the scene, the first take was done and the old cut, he, he kind of looked at me a little differently and kind of squinted his eyes and then he introduced himself to me. Like the seal Which, of approval. Yeah, it was. Amazing. Because it was kind of like prior to, to shooting the scene, he didn't care who I was. Yeah. And then afterward, he cared enough to introduce himself. So that was like, I was a big moment for me incredible tell me about the the filmmaker brian so this is is this the second film you've worked on with him yeah uh brian and i lost tree right uh we've we have we've known each other for a long time and worked on various inceptions of projects in different capacities um and uh but yeah i mean this may be our our second one but it really feels like the first one that we've really uh accomplished what we've set out to do as filmmakers and you're a um, producer on the film as well, we should say. Yeah, yeah. Is I that am. hard, juggling two roles, being on set and being the business guy, but then also being the star and, and getting your acting chops up to speed and then juggling the schedules and all of that? Is that a... It can be challenging, especially... task Especially when playing a role that's vastly different than me. Um, but because Brian also wrote the script and knew the challenges that he was creating for me, we spent a lot of time in pre-production before we even got into like the whole casting thing of actually just focusing on the character um, and developing, you know, how he was going to talk and how he was going to walk and what attitude he was going to have and what ways he was going to be different than me. Um, and, and really delving into the, the story shows a lot of his, of his history. So it was kind of all spelled out for me, but even some of the things that we talked about ended up being put into later drafts um, uh, in regard to his history with his, his family and his mom and, 
and all that. Um, and, you know, the character really, it's not widely defined. Uh, it's only kind of just touched on. But when you start to find out what he's been through, you realize there's no possible way this guy isn't suffering from some sort of mental illness. Well, they're always my favorite films when it's not spelled out. <coughs> And you have to kind of engage and, and work your mind and try and fill in the blanks. Yeah. And that's when, for me, cinema is at its best, when it is not a clear-cut case of, oh, I know exactly what this character is and what's driving and defining him. You have to invest in the story and, and go on that journey with him. Yeah, yeah. I think there's a, there's a line early on um, where Lou Diamond Phillips, who plays my, that's uh, a great name. my, character, <laughs> my character's uh, parole officer, uh, asks Ethan, my character, uh, if uh, he's had any recent outbursts uh, of anger. So it's kind of like you're wondering, like, oh, is this guy like an anger management guy? Mm -hmm. You don't, you don't necessarily realize that it's his, you know, parole officer. It's, again, it's not really spelled spelled out as the film unfolds. Um, Brian, is he an actor as well? Is he in certain scenes in this film or in the in the Lost Tree film? Uh, he is in this film. Yeah, um, and he uh, he studied uh, actually extensively for about three or four years leading up into this one, mainly because of working together and and sort of talking about how you know the best directors are the ones that can really communicate to actors. Yeah, and yeah, the only way a director in my mind as an actor can communicate to actors is if they understand the, the craft. craft and the technique. Yeah. And so much so that, uh, Brian actually kind of broke my stride and my technique on this one and had me infusing techniques that prior to this film, I was wholeheartedly against. Uh, I, I kind of studied under the Stanislavski techniques and was not a big fan of Meisner. Um, and Brian did a lot of Meisner training, uh, as well as other ones and kind of roped me into some hybrid techniques where I was infusing some Meisner with my Stanislavski, uh, which was a first for me, but it really accomplished some great things. So I, I owe a lot to, uh, to Brian for drawing that out of me. And he did that because he put so much work and, and he's great in the film too. He plays, you know, one of the, uh, the main henchmen that's kind of, you know, uh, under Mickey Rourke's character. Right. And how amazing is it to be almost 30 years into your career as an actor and still be learning and growing and developing? I tell you, after working with Mickey, I want to go back to school. Yeah. <laughs> He's the king, man. Yeah. No, and, and, and the stories he would tell, I don't want to, you know, I mean, I'm sure if you go and watch any of his interviews and well, he... Well, dude, he needs to come on this. He, uh, he talks about, you know, uh, the, the other actors that he's danced around De Niro. Um, he, uh, yeah, he is, he's one of a kind. So intense and so just, yeah, he's one of a kind for sure. What was Madsen like? Because again, he's another one of those figures for me that is a enigmatic powerhouse of a human as well as a performer. And his work, particularly in that 90s run from Reservoir Dogs and, you know, just again, a quite intense, I would imagine, character. Yeah, I mean, you know, Madsen, no offense to Madsen, I mean, he doesn't hold a candle to, to Mickey, but, you know, who well, does? Well, he's more of like a character actor, isn't he, right. Madsen? Is, yeah. But the, the cool thing for, for Madsen uh, in the film that we did was that he wanted to, or he was willing to kind of go against type uh, and not play just the bad guy, um, but be the caring father, which, 
you know, he really hadn't done in in 15 plus years. Yeah. Well, um, in and Thelma so, and Louise, he's kind of that guy, like he's the good, loyal boyfriend. Right. And then after that, he was then just in Free Willy. He was the dad as well. Right. And then I guess he was just so great as Mr. Blonde that that almost then typecast him as that type of convict, morally bankrupt Right. Very reprehensible, kind of gnarly dude. Yeah, that's like his Tarantino go to <laughs> yeah. instant breakfast role. Yeah. So we definitely, uh, Brian definitely got a, a different performance out of him um, for for our work together. Um, and it was good. He was he was great to work with. He was he was open to it and was excited to to do something against type. Did you get to spend much time with him off the set? Were you telling me, am I right in thinking this, that he has the car? from Reservoir Dogs at his house on his drive. He does. He does. Uh, I didn't get to see that until I think we were doing some ADR for the film, um, and his schedule was kind of tight, so we we had to schedule something that was near his house. And so we did, and then um, we were going to call the driver, and he's like, no, just give me a ride home. So I did, and and when we got to his house, yeah, that that car was, was there right in his driveway. That's one hell of a prop to take home, isn't it? Right. I wonder if they if they let him or if he just drove <laughs> off with it. Because yeah. he told a great story about uh, the the way that that scene ended up being in the film. Is the other actor? I, I'm I, pardon me for not remembering his name, but the actor that played the cop that he's kidnapping in Reservoir Dogs. Yep. Um, he wanted to feel what it was like to be in the trunk, and Madsen said, "Sure, no problem." And he closed him in the trunk, and then he got in the car and started going for a joyride. And the guy's like banging on the thing and he pulled into a drive through and ordered a soda. And when he came back to set, the actor is in the trunk banging like, let me out of here. And, you know, and Matson just strolls out sipping with on the soda. soda. Yeah. And as Mr. Blonde. And the soda was not in the script. But when Tarantino saw this moment and the other actor, I mean, it's terrible what he did to him. But, you know, who would really in the right mind ask Madsen to lock them in the trunk of a car? I heard that that scene was the first example in cinematic history of the camera being placed inside the boot and that being the view out. That's something that I read. That was the first time that angle had ever been seen. Oh, crazy. There you go. Geek facts. Geek facts. (laughs) How did you get your break in the business? How did it all start for you as an actor? Uh, Man, my, um, I guess my first big, my first role, my first speaking part was uh, on television playing a young Tony Danza. How old were you at the time? Uh, I think I was six. Wow, that's so super young. Yeah, nineteen eighty-six. Um, so how did that come about? Same like, same year that my son started and played uh, Zoe Dashnell and Jake Johnson's son on the New Girl. She's just beautiful. You know, he's actually uh, my son is in Adverse as well. Really? Yeah, he plays Matt Ryan's son. Amazing. Uh, Matt wanted to. He's one of the other henchmen of uh, of Mickey Rourke, and he um, he. Uh, wanted to round out his character a little bit and show, you know, a different side because he was a very cold, hard-edged character. He, You know him from, like, playing Constantine on television. Uh, he plays John Constantine on that short-lived series and now on, like, the DC Universe or whatever. Um, so Brian wrote in this scene, and he's like, hey, uh, Tom, we need to hire some kids. I was like, I, ha- I know a kid. He's ready to work. Yeah. <laughs> so were your parents in the business? My mom was pursuing a career um, and then got a job casting atmosphere in like some low budget independence. And that was kind of how I got my first taste of being on set, of just being a, a background actor. Right. Um, and I is just, that what atmosphere is like an extra? Yeah. 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 So like I, that's how I got my first experience of 
being on a set with, you know, 50 or 100 crew members creating this film and just the energy and the way that it all works was I just I instantly like was drawn to it like a fish to water and bugged my mom about doing it again. Um, and so, you know, she generated another opportunity for me and I still wanted to do more and pursue it. And that's how I first got my first agent and started going on auditions for actual, you know, featured parts, not just uh, background parts. That seems to me to be perhaps rare, certainly impressive and interesting that you have that drive and that innate taste for this craft, this lifestyle, this business at such a young age. Where do you think that came from? Um, I just love the attention. I'm not sure. I think <laughs> I think uh, I I I oftentimes will joke that I you know I was more mature as a kid than I am now, uh, and that really just stems from you know being. You've got a lot of siblings, right? I do, but I but I'm my mom's only son, so I kind of had a little bit of a probably more so the only child scenario than the you know youngest of seven right uh there were times and i i had i i'm still you know close with my siblings um and there was times that i lived with them but the majority of my time was just my mom and me um so i was you know at a young age the quote-unquote man of the house and i think that being on a on a set you know it wasn't the same as being at school around your peers you know, you well, were, when you're a kid, you're the only adults. adults that you're around are teachers, your parents, and your friends' parents. That's it. Right. Right. Whereas a film set, everybody's an adult. You're the only kid, and it's a totally like flip reverse case scenario. Right. But you're around like a different mentality of adults. You're around, you know, oh, the play and... technicians and artists and craftsmen. Yep. You know, it's not the same as like it's not bureaucratic. And... Yeah, exactly. Yep. They're they're there, and they're just you know, it's the same way with my. My acting teacher of 10 years, he always spoke to me like I was my own person. He never Talked looked down, down on yeah. me. Not to say that teachers do, because I met a f I had a, a few great ones in school, but by and large, they're not. By and large, they are speaking down to children. Because um, they're the superior, and right. they're there to impart knowledge, and you're there to listen and observe and soak up and obey. And, and, and on set, I was more of, uh, you know, as long as I followed the rules, and I wasn't the loudmouth kid when it was you were meant to be quiet, as long as I was smart enough to do that, then I was an equal. Yeah, yeah. And I was smart enough to do that. I was smart enough to play when it was time to play and to toe the line when it was time to toe the line. It's interesting what you say about that dichot like not dichotomy, but dynamic, sorry, between yourself and your mother is, you know, when it comes to Rookie of the Year, which was, I guess, your first lead role breakthrough, there's, aside from the baseball in the storyline, there's this kind of very delicate, quite sensitive adult subtext between, you know, Henry's character, or Henry, the character, and his mum, and the whole single parent thing. So did you bring a lot of your own experience into that? Yeah, I would say that. I would say that I did and I also I had an interesting conversation a few years back with one of the producers of that and he said that one of the main reasons that that film has stood the test of time the way that it has is not just cuz it's a baseball classic cuz it's a fantasy, you know, in regard to baseball. Yeah. It's, you know, it's totally fantastical. It's it's not It's filled a dream stuff. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um it's not moneyball. Right. But it's uh, but what what makes it stand the test of time is Amy Morton's performance in that and the 
the power that it gave single moms. Yeah, absolutely. Because it, it really, you know, it just kind of showed like, I don't know, there was a strength in her performance yep. in that film and and how it turned out that, you know, she was the, the ball player all along. Mm -hmm. And did you get a whole newfound sense of respect and understanding for your mother through the process of making that film? And did it allow you to appreciate parents more? Uh, I mean, I always, role. I always appreciated my, my mom in that respect, uh, because she always did the same. She always treated me as an equal, um, and, and didn't, you know, speak down to me. And so, um, in that regard, I think during that film, I just kind of like grew up a little bit. Were you 12 um, when you made it? Were you the same age as the character? Yeah. Yeah. I was 12. Uh, I was, you know, right at the, what we shot it. What, September, October, November, I had just turned 12 the July before. Um, but it was, you know, three months, 55 shooting days, and I worked 54. Was it physically demanding? Oh, for sure. I uh, I gave myself tendonitis during, really? during that film. Yeah. Really? How? Just from um, pitching so hard? From pitching so hard, and, you know, it was cold. By the time we got to Wrigley, it was the postseason. It was October, so Chicago was really cold. I had to go do school for 20-minute increments, and then run back to set to shoot. And so there wasn't always enough time for me to warm up my arm. And then a lot of times they had me pitching no baseball so they could CGI it in. And when you don't have a field of resistance, also if you know anything about the mechanics of pitching, um, you want your arm to be as straight as possible. But if you know Henry's maneuver that Daniel Stern and I created, yep. it's essentially called short arming. So you take short arming, and then you put no warm-ups, and then you put no ball in my hand. And being 12. And there's the tendonitis. <laughs> and your body's growing and developing. and Yeah. That's nuts. So they really worked you hard. They treated you like an adult in that sense as well, like that we're not going to give you a pass because you're, you know, oh, you're no, there a minor. Was, there was no pass. I, I remember one moment in particular. Um, I was doing a scene that ended up being cut from the film, ironically, where... The, <laughs> Ain't that always the way. That's always the way. <laughs> The uh, we we leave the ball field after I've just thrown the ball from you know the center field bleachers to home plate, you know the three hundred foot throw, and then the uh, the friends are like do it again and they give me a rock and then I throw the rock and it's supposed to go faster than the L train in Chicago, so I'm throwing this rock by a Steadicam camera so it's a hollow plastic rock which you know has zero ability to resist the wind and just looks like a wobbly ridiculous throw yeah it's like um, throwing a paper plate or something pretty yeah. much yeah. and they're just like it needs to be faster it doesn't look fast enough and so i was literally throwing my arm out you're like just give me a real rock guys <laughs> right well i couldn't because i'm throwing it at camera uh and i remember i my arm was hurting so bad uh and i i was 12 and i was in tears and the uh the producer came over to me and he said uh is this um is this too much for you? And I, I, I kind of sniffled up. I said, what do you mean? He says, well, if, it, if it's too much, we totally understand. We're only a couple weeks into production, and we can just call it quits. You can go home, and we can start this over with someone else. Wow. So they played and that I, hard and ball I was with like, you at And that I was age. like, no, I'm good. Let's go. I've got this. And that's how I grew up. <laughs> and that is, I guess that is right there an early introduction to the brutal nature of the industry. Did you find that? Your well, experience making that film, you were like, ah, this isn't just fun and games. This is a kind of dog eat dog world. the The reality of it is, the reality of it is that uh, you know it doesn't matter what's kind of going on off camera or to get the shot. It's all about getting the shot. And that's a good lesson to learn early on. 
Yeah. It's also, you know, from the standpoint of, I mean, was he really, was he really willing to do that? Right. Or was I it see just what a you're play? Saying. You know what I mean? Just to get Those the shot. tricks that you play on each other in that field, as you say, to get the, yeah. the scene, right. which is what you're all there to get. Yeah. I mean, that cast, Gary Busey, that dude, I saw his work very early on, Under Siege was a movie that came out when I was, I think, about 11 or 12. And I was like, who is this maniac? Well, come on, music man. You've seen Buddy Holly. Not till much later on. Oh, not till much, not later. Till much okay. later on. But he, is he as insane as you think he is? Uh, probably more so. Even more so. But his I think son's during... apparently wild as well. And not as wild as, as him. No? I, saw, I just saw Jake uh, a couple months ago. I hadn't seen him in years. And uh, no, he... Is he around Jake, your age? I think so. Older. Maybe a couple years older, but... He doesn't hold a candle to the to the energy that Gary had even back then. And you had a lot of scenes with him. How was oh, it yeah. at that age working with a guy that larger than life, that off the rails? Um, you know, it was you all right. The, stories the, from set? the biggest the biggest challenges I think were between him and Daniel Stern. Um, well, but he was nice to other. me. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he once carried me by my underwear twenty five feet across the lunchroom. <laughs> <laughs> and that's him being nice. Yeah, there you go. Um, Daniel Stern as well, people will know as Marv from Home Alone. Of and course. Home Alone 1 and 2 had just come out before you went into filming that, right? But he was also in Diner and yeah. Very oh, Bad Diner is the best. Don't be putting <laughs> my 45s with my 78s. <laughs> that character's so good. Yeah. Um, what was he like as a director? Um, he was he was great. He was he was having a blast. And I think that the the Brickma character that he plays in the film wasn't even in the script. That was sort of his like stress reliever role, so you know that zaniness is not him at all. He's uh, right, okay. He's a, a you know a super caring person. It's funny too because he had searched for the character for the the actor to play Henry in L.A. and in Chicago and in New York, and they had seen. I I, I want to say like it could be somewhere around like fifteen hundred kids, maybe more. Um, and he was, he was to the point where his son, who's actually a Senator now, whose name is Henry, he was going to have his son play the role. Who's only 10. So he's a little young for it, but he's like, listen, I know I can get what I want out of this character. And then it just so happened that I accidentally auditioned for the role twice. And, uh, on the second one got the call back and then what did you do differently? You'll uh, never know. Nothing. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> he was just that at the end of his tether. By that, well, he point. wasn't at the audition. It was it was with the casting director. I I just went on the first call and didn't get the call back, and and then was switching agents. And the new agent said, "Hey, we got this role, this audition for you." I said, "Oh, I already went on that." And she goes, "Well, they obviously don't remember you, so go again." Brilliant. So I and did. Thank God you did. Right. How much did your life change after that film came out? Um, it was very strange because it was a big movie, right? Yeah, I mean, it yeah, still it was is a, like a kind of a well, classic. It's just like American Pie; they were both uh, sleeper hits. Yeah, and, yeah, and, yeah. And, a, and to define a sleeper hit, um, which I don't know if that's maybe it's more widely known now. Back then, it was very much an industry term, kind of like you know when uh, Fallout Boy, like number one with a bullet. You know, it's like an industry term that made it into their song of what the the record companies would call a hit song. Uh, the sleeper hit is. Now we know like Marvel films that come out and they make, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars opening weekend instantly. Right. A sleeper hit is when the thing kind of comes out, sort of does nominally well. And then the next weekend does the same. And then the next weekend does the same and then just sort of stays and just keeps performing consistently. And rookie of the year 
and American Pie, the first one, both did that. Uh, where they didn't have, you know, their opening weekend was maybe like ten million. Yeah. Uh, but then they did ten million the next weekend, and then ten million the following. Which weekend. is in this industry rare. Right. It's rare to to be consistent. So that 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 basically means that the opening weekend is the result of your press. The follow up weekend is a result of the word of mouth. Mm-hmm. So and that it, just means yeah, that the both audience of them, begins to, I guess, grow through word of mouth. Right. An organic discovery. That's what keeps things. I think you know, giving gives it staying power. And in the the age uh, of DVDs and and VHSs, obviously, they would then go on to find audiences in those platforms as well. Do you think that's still a thing? Do you think, like, the the DVD audience has transferred in that sense? Like, a movie won't hit straight away, but then we'll find it on Netflix? Do you think that's a thing anymore, or...? I don't know. I mean, it's hard to say how much I'm aware of, you know, what the performance of uh, films that are not necessarily super successful in the box office, because the box office is a a really tough market right now. Um, and someone was, was asking me this just a, a, the other day, and they said, oh, do you think that Netflix and Amazon are ruining the box office? And I said, no. No, because even Netflix and Amazon are putting things in theaters. I think what's ruining the, the box office is technology. And, the, and it's the and lack of original ideas for me. No, no, me. it's not even a lack of original yeah, ideas. There is, come it's, on, remakes, it's, sequels, prequels. Sure, sure. But too that's, many of them. But that's a, that's a separate conversation. The main thing is, look, we're in this hotel room right now. Look at the size of that television. Yeah, it's a very nice TV. I mean, I that's, like a, that's like a, a what, a 25-inch widescreen? Yep. Right? When I was a kid, you had a square. That's a cinema right Right. There. Like, so what I'm saying is, you know, you sit 10 feet away from a, a screen like that that you can buy for a couple hundred bucks. You spend a couple hundred more on a good sound system. You don't need to go to the theater. Right. It's technology Got and you. the availability. Oh, so you that don't it mean has. the technology involved in filmmaking. No, you mean the technology I mean, involved in the consumption of film. I mean, like if you have great sound and a great picture at home, and the why quality is the streaming cinema? in in 4K or 2K, why do you want to go sit in a theater and listen to someone chewing popcorn really loud? Yeah. Well, for me, music has the same thing: is you can't download that gig. You right. can download the song. But there's always going to be a place for live music and I think for cinematic releases because it's about that collective experience, particularly with, in the case of film, I think horror and comedy are two of these genres that do so well in that scenario when there's loads of other people in the room with you to experience these heightened oh, emotions. Listen, like how often do you laugh out loud when you watch a comedy at home on your own? I right? I agree with you 100% and sitting in that you know theater where... We uh we had to jump out in in Porto, um to go do a couple of interviews and we had like a live hit with like a uh a, a, a TV show that was you know broadcasting our interview live throughout Portugal, um so we had to go do that and so then we were like hey we want to go and sit in the back of the theater and watch the audience react and see yeah, the yeah, vibe yeah. of what this is like because that was our first time you know playing it in a theater full of hundreds of people, there wasn't a seat left. We actually had to like sit in like some sort of like sound booth chairs in the very, very back because they couldn't even find seats for us. Amazing. Um, and so I'm all about that, you know, turn the lights down, yep. sit in a crowded theater and experience something together. Do you um, find yourself doing this? And I hate myself for doing it. But when I watch movies at home, I'm just constantly on my phone. I always do it, whereas obviously in the cinema, wouldn't even dream ever right. of getting my phone out of my pocket. There's something to be said for that as well. well but that I think is what's going to drive us back to the theater. Yeah, is that we all spend so much time on our devices that we're just missing life. Yeah, 
and 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 if and if it takes a movie to like get us to turn our phone off for two hours, you know, granted you're staring at another screen, but it's not the same sort. It's a you know, it's a story. It's an a emotion. story. There's imagination. There's, right. Yeah. There's a reaction. You're not getting an emotional reaction from, from <laughs> well, maybe from, you are <laughs> you today. <laughs> well, yeah, well, I was using Twitter as a, uh, as a device to speak my mind and get the attention of two companies that couldn't care less about me until I started actually lambasting them online. And I'm going to keep my fingers crossed that they track down my missing bag, what's missing and, and return it to its rightful owner. I, I mean, from from the standpoint of the fact that they can't find my bags and it's been three days, it's pretty disconcerting, I think it's, isn't it's it? pretty much going to be in two days. I'm going to file like, here's a list of everything that was in there and the money you owe me. Yeah. And then I'm going to wait another 30 days for them to say, we still can't find it. And then they're going to pay me money. I mean, that's fortunately there wasn't anything that wasn't, uh, I guess, ir- irreplaceable in uh in those bags and fortunately you have all the tools that you need on you yes to do what you're here to do which is oh, that was play songs and that DJ. was the best i got to the uh to the airport um where was i i was i so i make it from i went to porto to madrid and i'm getting to to load the plane in in uh i think it was i can't remember if it was porto or madrid it's kind of like a whirlwind of travel today because i had to, i got like two hours of sleep and went to the airport at you know 6 30 in the morning um, but I, I'm standing at the gate and the, the gate agent goes, what's in your case? I was like, it's just my guitar. And she goes, oh no, no. The rule of the airline is if you can take a musical instrument, but then you can only take one bag. And I said, lady, your airline lost two of my checked bags. You're not touching either one of these carry-ons. You're letting me on that plane. Well, that's not that I go. No, that's what's happening. That's fair enough. I was coming back from a tour I just recently did and I had a camera bag. And then I had my backpack with my laptop and they were like, one of those needs to go in the overhead. And I was like, there's about a thousand to 2000 pounds worth of equipment in each one. They're both staying by my feet. And they go, okay. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Uh, To go back to how your life changes, rookie of the year comes out. You're 13 by the time it's released. Is it hard to maintain a normal child life after, you know, what you call a sleeper hit like that? begins to draw attention to you as a face as a recognizable personal figure can you still maintain anonymity as a kid and go about life as a teenager and enjoy the things that kids do or yeah i mean i think you know uh i didn't have to uh quit it all like henry did to uh get my 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 kid life back um did you stay in school yeah 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 i stayed in school I, i was actually I booked the film and it started three days before I was meant to start uh, junior high school. Right. So, and in, for in the States, junior high starts at seventh grade. So it was three days before I was going to a brand new school and then I'm off to Chicago. Um, and unbeknownst to me, they really set me up for failure at school because the homeroom teacher talked about me like filming this big Hollywood movie. So when I got to school, everyone was expecting me to be a jerk. Right. You know, just a full of myself kid like, hey, look at me. I'm a star. Spoiled little brat. Right. And and that's not my personality at all and never has been. So I learned the valuable lesson of, uh, you know, how to be perceived. Yep. And so. Because you know people talk. Right. And so it's it's the idea. Obviously, it takes a little bit more work to prove that you have your feet on the ground if people anticipate that you don't uh and the, in amongst that i kind of also learned that you know it doesn't matter what you do you can be a jerk and you know 
uh, and act like you own the world and and have that mentality no matter what you do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I just, you know, I learned it's all about, like, if you do that, then you're going to draw more of those people and then you're just going to have a bunch of false friendships. So when you, you know, stick stick to your guns and stay true to yourself, then you find the people that are also true to themselves and then you find, you know, real friends. And I'm still good friends with uh, with one of the guys I went to junior high school with. He nice. Was best man at my wedding. And um, now we both have two kids and we were, uh, you know, just texting the other day, sending back pictures of our kids to each other and, just playing a little catch up. Obviously, when you have two kids, you don't get to hang out as much. No, but we're still friends. Yeah, I mean that's a whole other thing, which we'll get to, I'm sure, soon down the line. Uh, what I wanted to talk about was the years in between Rookie of the Year and American Pie. Are you working a lot in that time? Is it easy to get work because this film has been a success and you're the lead role? Do you find your career is taking off, or is it a little bit slower than you would have anticipated, or are you just focusing on being a kid, getting school done, and not trying to follow up on that with another success straight away um i mean i wasn't ever you're really trying to juggle these kind of career choices right at a very young age and yeah but it, for me it wasn't about like trying to achieve a, a success uh in fact the you know the the success of the film was was so discombobulating uh at that age that i really steered away from even wanting to do press and and further that idea i just wanted to work okay so you didn't want to be a star you just wanted to be an actor right uh and so i remember getting uh the next film you know doing like some guest spots on tv and things and then getting the next movie uh and then i remember my manager at the time was like okay now that the film's done we're gonna hire a publicist and we're gonna start the campaign and i was like no i'm good He's like, well, that's going to mess up, you know, you getting work. I'm like, no, the work speaks for itself. I just want to work. And that's a bold that, move. Yeah, it didn't necessarily work out in my favor. <laughs> right. Um, because, because in the short term, at least in the short term. No, because because it did exactly that. It, it basically meant that, you know, I was not generating. You didn't become the next Macaulay Culkin. Like. I wasn't taking enough selfies, you yeah, know, essentially yeah, yeah. before selfies existed. Were you like, friends with any other child actors like a Macaulay Culkin? Did you no, sort of group together really, with anyone like that? No. I mean, I hung out with with some people that were in in the business, but it wasn't like my only go to thing. I, yeah. I kind of steered away from from anything in regard to that. I would go to an event if I got invited, but it wasn't my my focal point. Um, and so I did the the sequel to then that film. Um, so this was a kid in Arthur's Court and a kid in Aladdin's Palace. Yep. And then at that point, I was about 15, turning 16, started focusing more on music um, and still doing, you know, guest spots, but just kind of trying to balance like my social life. I could drive now and and then, you know, I had my band and I was still going on auditions and, you know, it, it was kind of doing a little bit of everything, but I definitely didn't focus enough on my career as an actor that it started to make my representatives really mad right uh so i think yeah when i when i was about 17 about to turn 18 i had it in my mind that i was going to actually move to london okay um to do I, what to act or no i well i was going to i had done uh the adr for a kidding arthur's court here and we had to adr everything What's ADR? Sorry. Uh, audio dubbing recording. It's when you dub over your own voice. Got it. 
So King Arthur's Court is a, you know, a period piece. It's in the days of, you know, medieval times with King Arthur. And there's airplanes flying over like every scene where we shot it in uh, in Budapest, Hungary. So I had to ADR. I had to redub my own voice for 256 lines of dialogue. Wow. Which I did in two and a half days. And I don't know if the engineer was joking or serious, but he was like, hey, man, anytime you want a job here, because I was this, you know, 14 year old kid. So in my mind, I was like. Wow, that would be so cool. I'll move to London. I well, loved London. Do voiceover work. And and work, yeah, do voiceover work and then maybe like go do plays or yeah, yeah, you know yeah, yeah. and pursue the craft and all that. And that was my plan. And then I booked American Pie. <laughs> Amazing. And again, you're the same age at that point in time as the character you're playing or thereabouts, yep. right? Exact age, yeah. Was that the case with the whole cast? Were you all fairly of the same age group or were certain people because often, I think now and probably before that film, teenagers and it's been taking the piss out of as well. They're being played by like, you know, people in their late twenties or even older sometimes. Well, they weren't older than that, but there were, <clears throat> I'm trying to think. I mean, Eddie K. Thomas was 17, which is why they can't show his scene of, uh, with Stifler's mom. That's Finch right there. Yeah. 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 That's why this, the scene is off camera. The snooker. Cause it wasn't allowed. Snooker table sex cause scene. He, cause right. he wasn't, yeah. Cause he wasn't, he wasn't legally old enough, legally to, be old enough to be, you know, <laughs> performing, uh, with an adult. <laughs> Um, I want to say, you know, hate to like, like, uh, well, all this information out, is yeah. public. Isn't it? I think Sean <laughs> William Scott was probably the oldest, if right. I'm not mistaken. And maybe Tara. Um, and I want to say they were somewhere in their mid twenties. Right. More or less. Um, maybe, maybe Tara, not so much. I'm trying to think who else it was. There was a couple of people that were like somewhere around like 24, maybe so, but not, not that far off. What do you yeah, think yeah, about yeah. that age? We're only talking about six years. Yeah. It wasn't like anyone was like 32 yeah, yeah, and yeah. playing, <laughs> you know, high school. <laughs> What's going on over here? It's the Matthew McConaughey, isn't it? <laughs> Have you right, got a Matthew I'll McConaughey run. story we can get into quickly before we go back into the American Pie? Sure. Let's see <laughs> if... Uh... All right, all right. Yeah. So how did you meet him, first of all? How did you two... Well, the first time I met him connect. actually was at a Bruce Springsteen concert. I snuck backstage... Um, to meet Bruce after he played at Dodger Stadium and to tell him that it was my dream with his blessing to play him in a movie one day. And he, you know, put his arm around me and, and I can looked, see at that. It, looked at his manager and he goes, what do you think? You think we look alike? And his manager looked at him, looked at me, looked at him, looked at me and was speechless because, you know, we're about the same height. Yep. And, you know, if I jut my lower jaw out, I'm, I'm Bruce all the way. Uh, so I briefly met Matthew McConaughey there. What year uh, is this? 2006. 2006. Uh, it was my my. It was July two thousand six, and so uh, cut to two thousand eighteen. I was at um, CinemaCon in Las Vegas, where they kind of launch the studios present all their films that they're going to be coming out that year to all the theater chains and get them kind of like amped up about what to expect that year. And I think he had uh, White Boy Rick coming out, so he was there promoting that. And then there was this after party, and so everybody wanted to talk to Matthew McConaughey. And everyone was, like, clamoring around, and he's just, like, talking to the producers of the film and kind of ignoring this crowd of people around him. So I, of course, would have liked to have said hello, but I was like, I'm not going to go wait in line just so I can remind him of something that he might not remember. So I'm kind of maybe 10 feet, or I'm outside the circle and I'm just having a conversation with some theater owners that own an indie the independent theater in like Maryland or something. And, uh, and this, this, uh, this one gal kind of is, 
involved in our conversation. She's sort of nearby and says, oh, I, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to butt in. It's like, fine. We're just sitting here, you know, just shooting the breeze. We're just talking. So we we start chatting about something. And then I think she says something about Matthew McConaughey. And I was like, oh, and I told her, you know, I wanted to say hi because we met it like in in 2006. And she and she starts arguing with me about the date of when that concert was. Because uh, apparently, like, it was something about, like, yeah, she just starts arguing with me about, about the date, and then we start talking about, like, memory and dates, and then pretty soon we're talking about, like, remembering our own anniversaries of our respective marriages. Uh-huh. I can see where this is going. <laughs> I love it. So I say how, you know, my wife and I decided on January 3rd, it's always a slow time in the industry for, you know, her touring and my uh, filmmaking and touring and and uh, and so we were like, we will never forget this date. It's always, you know, a couple days after New Year's. And then she tells this story about her and her husband arguing about their date of their marriage and that they opened up a drawer in the kitchen and there was a koozie from their marriage and they were both wrong about the date they were married. So I don't realize who this person is, um, <laughs> but I know that essentially, unbeknownst to me, Matthew looks over in our direction and then looks to another person who is assumingly maybe his publicist or manager or someone who then shoots a look at her and she just abruptly leaves the conversation. Very like odd to be mid-conversation and then someone just kind of darts cuts, out without cuts saying. Cuts the cord, exits. Yeah, cuts the cord, exits, doesn't say goodbye. So I didn't realize that this was Camilla, Matthew McConaughey's wife. So party's kind of winding down. The, the crowd of people have gotten to say their quick hellos to Matthew or have given up. And there's maybe a few stragglers and I'm standing over kind of in the same area. And all of a sudden, Matthew and Camilla he, in tow, <laughs> he beelines it right at me, just coming like daggers, like coming right at me like he's going to bowl me over. And uh, and he, he walks up and I, I'm like, oh, cool. I'll, I'll get to say hi to Matthew McConaughey, right? <laughs> And so he, he looks at me and he goes, I saw you talking to my wife. And I said, uh, oh, yeah. I said, well, you know, we were just talking about uh, how I had briefly met you. I don't expect you to remember in 06 at the Bruce Springsteen concert. He's like, Springsteen, huh? I was like, yeah, you know, the big man was still there. You know, we both met, you know, Clarence. He's like, the big man. And I was like, yeah, you know, the sax player, like he was still alive then. And, you know, anyway, it's good to see you again. He goes, all right, all right, all right. And he walks away. But he was definitely... And Coming to kick your ass. Yes, yes, because apparently, unbeknownst to me, he's he is uh, outspoken about being territorial and right. being... He's just a jealous guy. Yeah, he, he is... He has said this, and it was brought to my attention after this moment, because I was like, what the heck does that I just love that all he needed to do was shoot his publicist a look that she then did to the wife, and she's like, out. Right. Amazing. Yeah. Because he basically was like- Got a whole yeah. system in place. The whole system. Because like I said, because I was like, what just happened? Did Matthew McConaughey just try to kick my ass? And uh, And they're like, yeah, he's pretty, like, he's a jealous person, and he has stated so. That that is him, so I avoided uh, an ass whooping <laughs> by Matthew McConaughey. I just love that even in that moment of anger, he still <laughs> reverted to 
All right, all right, all right. <laughs> he did, he did. Uh, I don't think he really meant to, but um, I mean, it's just funny that only only me, only me, only I Is would be in a... Is he a big dude? Does he impose No, him? I mean, he's like the same size as me. I right. could have taken him. Right, yeah. Uh, <laughs> only, only I would have the experience where I'm speaking to someone's wife about our respective mm-hmm. yeah. dates of marriage. Yep. And then I get a potential ass whooping by their spouse. Amazing. And, and I, the spouse I, happens to be Matthew McConaughey. And I, I wanted, at that moment, I mean, if, if things had progressed further, I would have been like, I, don't, I can't remember the date now, but I think at the time I would have remembered like the date had been like, yeah. you know, I actually know when you two got married. Do you? Yeah. <laughs> then you'd have definitely gone to fist. Oh, for sure. For sure. <laughs> would have been a great story, though. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Were you guys on set um, workshopping a lot and doing bonding team building exercises in the process of making American Pie? Because with ensemble films like that, I really feel like the magic comes to light when there's genuine friendships there. And I think for me, that film, it came out at a time when I was, I think, 13 or 14. So it was just the exact right age for a film like that. It captured all the, the clothes, the music, the culture. It was just, you know, a beautiful time for alternative music, which was so entrenched in the soundtrack to that film. And obviously, you know, these kind of gross, crass, funny teen comedies are perfect for a teenager to consume. And But I think what marked out that film as being separate from a lot of others that preceded it and came after was the heart and the real genuine kind of relationships that these, particularly the male characters, share with each other. And I think we've spoken about this before, but for me there was a real coming-of-age tenderness to that film. So did you guys do a lot of workshopping and bonding in the lead-up to shooting, and did you indeed become, you know, like genuine, real friends on the set? I mean, I think... How did it work? The... uh... Well, first of all, Paul and Chris Weitz, who directed the film... Uh, was were, it their first movie? It was their first directing job. Yeah. And was I the, think, the screenwriter uh, a first-time writer First-time well? writer, Adam Hers, yeah. yeah. Um, I think prior to that, Chris and Paul had written the movie Ants. Right. Um, and so their focus, 
and especially more Paul. Paul was very much focused on like the character development and you know what each character represented and what their backstory would be. And Chris was definitely more focused on you know the punchlines and the, and, comedy, and, yeah, and yeah. the yeah. comedy aspect. So they were a great team great in that team, regard. Yeah. Um, so that's why it has both because they had two guys and one had each corner covered. Exactly. And then as far as the rehearsal process, once once the cast was locked and loaded, um, we did about two weeks of rehearsals, which I think rehearsals with and it was like a, a mix and match. So like, you know, the first day was everyone together doing a big table reading and then they kind of broke everything off and they would do different groupings. So like some days I would go to rehearse and it would just be you know, Tara and, and me for like a half a day. Other times it would be, you know, with Jason and Chris and Eddie. Um, and it was always different inceptions uh, of that. And we would we would spend time working on the scenes and we would talk about the characters and we would, you know, go out for lunch and, you know, just kind of have that hang time. And I, I've always said that, you know, you give an actor, you know, two days of that rehearsal and they'll give you, you know, two months of history. Yeah. So you give someone, it's real. you give someone two weeks and now all of a sudden they can give you two years mm -hmm. of history. So it definitely gave us a lot to connect off of. And, and now that you mentioned this, I realize how much, uh, JB Rogers was following in suit when we did the sequel because he would bring us in for rehearsal and we wouldn't even really rehearse the things. We would just like hang out and go to strip clubs amazing you know sounds like, like a really hard gig yeah but he would because he was just kind of like you guys already know these characters and i i realized as you're saying this it was all just about us spending that time together because yeah. that's the energy that's what makes even this interview so much more important or or i don't know bring so much more life to it than us doing it over the phone yeah Exactly. Face-to-face -face and real-life connection and, and history all combined. Well, it's, um, that, it's that vibration, you know what I mean? Like, it's that's why we're, like, you know, you say you, you, when you're hanging with someone, you're vibing. Mm -hmm, you can't get that vibe I, I never do. I never do podcasts on the phone. I used to obviously do phone or interviews when I was working on Kerrang! Um, because that was, a, you know, a necessary part of it is you, right. you're playing new music all the time. You want to get the latest single from 30 Seconds to Mars. Let's chat to Jared Leto for five minutes and you can do that. Whereas I think with especially a style of a show like this, where it's hopefully a lot more conversational and in, in depth, if you don't have the person there in front of you, there isn't that same spark. Who did you connect with the most? Um, man, I think probably, uh, you know, during, during the film, uh, it, it, there's different sorts of inceptions. So like, you know, during the film, um, I was very much focused on the, the sort of history of Kevin and, and kind of connecting with, with Tara and then also, you know, with the boys, but see Jason and Eddie were kind of already friends beforehand. Um, were they coming from a New York East coast? Kind yeah. Of a little bit of that. Background. And, um, you know, obviously I knew, uh, Chris Owen who played the Shermanator and there was, you know, a couple little like, uh, other minor roles where I knew some of the people it, it was probably afterwards when we were doing the, um, the press tour and we're once again, even though I, <laughs> was that a fun, were you doing had, like all over the world together? We, we did some areas more, some of the other cast went to other places. I kind of did my same, used to the same tactic. Everybody same. else is on the public publicity training I didn't hire a publicist for you the step first back time. i step back which again cost me follow-up roles 
Well, yeah, I think after that film, obviously, you know, I think Sean William Scott would probably be the biggest quote unquote success story. Right. But, but, but Jason, then Jason went on to do a bunch of films. That of course. Yeah. I don't necessarily know that they performed as well as the studios wanted them to. Tara went on to do other films. I mean, she did Josie and the Pussycats after that. Um, you know, obviously Allison had already done Buffy, Buffy, and then, you know, went on later to do, but how I met your mother was way later. Um, but I always feel like with those guys, their roles that followed, and this is with all due respect, their roles that followed on from American pie were always fairly similar to their characters in that film, because a lot of those characters were so good and so larger than life. Well, Is it hard for for those guys? Do you think to step away from those roles? I couldn't. I couldn't speak for them in regard to that. I mean, I can only probably you know surmise from the same you know perspective that you can yeah. about what they have done and what the outside perspective of that is. Well, I mean, um, sure, William Scott, a character like Stifler must be a blessing and a curse. Yeah, I'm. I'm sure that you know he must. He, how could he not feel that way? Um, you know he's 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 a very positive person, so he would never like divulge that kind of information or be down on that character for <laughs> the success that it's right. afforded him. Yeah, yeah. Because I mean, I I I remember even when we were shooting American Pie two, I had like grabbed this script and it was a very different uh, type of role, and I was seeing what he kind of wanted to do. I already had like my producing kind of hat on at that time, uh, and you know he was really non-committal on it. He was just kind of like in for anything. But I would say that I can, from from my own perspective, I think that I achieved the same short-term low result but long-term high result, which is by not hiring a publicist and by not going out of my way to advertise that character that I played, um, I didn't cement immediate roles that would have probably been similar. Yeah. Well, also, that character wasn't as... Again, I say this with all due respect because I love all the movies and all the, the people in it and the characters that they play. But I think Kevin was very much, quote unquote, the normal person in a sea of very... Well, here's here's the thing. Exaggerated, over-the-top characters. Do you know what I mean? He was like the kind of the, but that's the why, gel that held the group together. But that's why the film works. Yeah. Because in that scenario, every time I've ever seen a teen sex comedy... No one wants to be the backbone. No one wants to be everyone, the straight guy. Everyone yeah. wants to be the, you know, the highlight. Yeah. So that's why American Pie worked. And, and that's what Paul Weitz and I really worked on was the emotional standing and the dramatic history of Kevin and why he chose the things that he chose yeah. and who he was as a person and what his backstory was. I mean, you wouldn't think that in a comedy you'd write you know, a serious backstory about like whether or not Kevin's you know, parents had split up and why they had split up and what he really felt about the term I love you and yeah, why yeah, he yeah. didn't want to say it, yeah, you know? Yeah. And yeah, some... that's established in the opening scene, isn't it? Right. Is she's like, I love you. And he's like, uh, uh, and he, but it's not for the it sake, hard to say. it's not for the sake of comedy. It's no. coming from the standpoint of, it's emotionally of torn. his deep seated, you know, uh, uh, want to only say it when he actually means it, which he later reveals, but it's, it's, yeah, it's coming from like a, a deep rooted history that we, we carved out and wrote for that character. A place of conflict. Right. Yeah. And so in, in that regard, I think it worked out in the long run because I've, I've been afforded the opportunity to play very different roles to the point where, uh, it's always been my goal to be unrecognizable. Even when I was, like in, a Dustin Hoffman type. Even when I was in 
Porto. Some people didn't put two and two together. I mean, yeah, granted, when I go on the stage and introduce the film, yeah, yeah, yeah. they know that that's me. I'd be worried if they didn't know that but, stage. <laughs> but there was, there was a moment where I ran into some of the people that at the festival, and they, they looked at me, and they said, oh, because I talked to Brian, and they said, oh, who are you? And they're like, oh, you're Thomas. Oh, I didn't, they didn't like put it together. And, and you take that as a compliment. You're absolutely. Like, Great. Yeah. yeah, I mean, Brian has shown the film to industry professionals who say, oh, I thought that you said your business partner's in this movie. <laughs> yeah. And I'm the main protagonist. Yeah, yeah. No, he is. Yeah, he yeah. Is. or like, you know, like I had told you we were talking about films like playing Walt Disney. Yeah. That is a Great vastly film. different Great role. look for me. Yeah. And um, and the one I wanted to talk to you about in a moment, Simon, but I want to stay on American Pie for a moment. Yeah. Um, when you come back to make the second film, is there a pressure there? Is there an expectation? Because that first one obviously wasn't an overnight success, but did become huge. And, you know, had even like terms which were probably now in the dictionary, MILF, things like this. Like right. it was this huge phenomenon. So when you come back to make the sequel, is there pressure on set? Do you feel like we had a special film here? We don't want to fuck this up because... For me, there's so few comedies that have sequels that are on par or better than the original. I think American Pie 2 succeeds on both. I think it's bigger and better and the heart's still there. And, you know, in the way that the first movie captures high school adolescence, that college era storyline really taps into the whole wear and pull and kind of how people's lives change and people grow apart and trying to make sense of all that so i think it delivered on every sense but did you all feel as as a cast and crew on set like let's not fuck this up well there was a lot of things a lot of factors that helped us hurt us and that we fought against um the the first thing is the studio first tried to hire a different writer and he tanked his rendition of the film uh, and so they had to bring in Adam Hers. Right. So he he wrote the second film, but the directors didn't come back to direct. Correct. Yep. Uh, and so then you know he are they was, still involved as producers or anything? They or? were still involved yep. as producers. Right. Yeah, still kind of there helping to make sure that we you know stayed on point to what they had helped create. Yep. Uh, but not wanting to pigeonhole themselves as only being known as those of types course. of directors. Well, then they did about a boy right. soon afterwards. Totally different. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, and so then, you know, uh, Adam was writing from, cause he based all these characters on his real friends. Um, and so that's, that lake house is what they did and paint houses to pay. He for must the lake have had house. a great childhood. <laughs> so, you know, that he was, he was right. You know, they say, write what you know. Well, Adam was writing what he knew. Yeah. Um, the other element of it that, you know, is sad to say, I mean, it was great that I may he rest in peace that I got to work with him was Chris Penn, uh, was, was Chris a Penn. Yeah, what's, Sean, his, what's his involvement in so, it? So Sean Penn's brother, Chris Penn, uh, was hired as Stifler's dad in wow. American Pie 2. Wow. Uh, so it was great to work with Chris. Um, he was not necessarily the right tonality for the film. Because he's terrifying. Uh, it's not so much that he's terrifying. There's just, yeah, there's a fine line of being able to pull off that kind of comedy where you can speak so terribly and have it be funny and not sad. And there was an element of sadness that somehow started where you started to actually feel terrible for like Stifler. And that was not the, the, you know, the idea, the nomenclature that we wanted to have, or that Sean wanted to have, or that the studio wanted to have. And ultimately, unfortunately got cut from the film entirely. I never is that like public knowledge? Has that been spoken about? I never it's been knew that. spoken about. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, at, I never at knew that. Times. Wow. Um, 
not not widely known. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the 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 real reality of it is, and and no offense to to Chris because he was a, a very very awesome so you, person. You got to do some scenes with him as well, yeah. Uh, I didn't really have very many scenes with him, but right. I definitely took the opportunity to hang out with him on set. I mean, it's, was Chris he Patton. great? Uh, yeah, he was great. He was, uh, he was just on like the, 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 like the re-kick, you know, he was, he was getting back in shape and, you know, had quit drinking and he was actually like, we were shooting in Malibu. So he, he was staying at his mom's house, like running in the morning to set. And, you know, he was all about it. Originally they had, uh, reached out to, uh, and let's see if I'm getting this right. Bill Paxton. Yeah. Uh, Wait, is he still no? Is he, he he recently passed. He as recently well. passed like, as well, right? About okay. Eighteen months to two. So we're talking years about ago, two yeah. guys that are not with us anymore. This is terrible. But uh, remember his role as Chet? Yeah, of course. In Weird Science, of course. So that was the Stifler's dad model, and he unfortunately was had just directed Frailty and was in post production. He was like, "There's no possible way I could do post production." On as the, the director I'm making, on yeah. frailty <laughs> and come reprise, you know, essentially Chet yep. from Weird Science to be Stifler's dad. But he had the right tonality. If Chet had been Stifler's dad, those scenes would have worked. It just didn't work with Chris. I like that there's a lot of tip of the hats to the likes of Fast Times at Ridgemount High and those kind of high school films in American Pie as well. It's not over the top. And if you don't know that world, it's not going to jump out at you. But especially with the surrealistic elements that you kind of, again, it's hard to balance that, I think, a heartfelt storyline with, you know, like the sex Bible book right. and moments like that that are obviously so absurd and, you know, completely fake. But then they sit in this world and, and obviously Casey Affleck as well as, as your big bro. Did, I know you, that's a, did a, you ever get to speak on the phone actually to him in those scenes? No, or? no, we shot them on completely different days, both times, right? both films. Uh, I think the only time that I met him was at the premiere of, the, the first, first American one. Pie. I didn't even meet him during a rehearsal. Was he like a big star at that point? Had he done? No, no, I don't think so. Many successful films. I think um, he. What was the one he did in the nineties to die for? Right with Joaquin Phoenix and Nicole Kidman. Yeah, I mean, I think he had. He had he'd been in a few bits he'd here. He'd and done there. that. He he was established, but it certainly wasn't like, you know, he hadn't gone on to you know, I mean, you know, obviously later Manchester by the Sea, and of course, the Oscar. Yeah. And, uh, was Goodwill Hunting know, out? Goodwill by that hunting. point, I know he's only a fairly small role in that, but because he was known, was, was he? Did he feel like a kind of well, a star cameo? That, that, I think it was maybe '97. Yeah, that I guess that had off. come out. He so. he was in that because I mean I remember it was a pretty big deal because his brother came to the premiere of American Pie. Um, I don't think Matt Damon was there, but Ben was, so that was kind of trip a trip. And then I don't even think I like went over and said hi because I was no. like, did you say hello to Casey though? I, briefly i'm your brother <laughs> he's like who <laughs> yeah pretty much uh i don't even actually remember the encounter i mean there was crazy amounts of people that were there i mean dustin hoffman was there well it was like i said just a huge film i yeah. don't think there's been another good high school comedy film since that like for me it stands up with the fast times at ridgemount high and the the porkies and well the, the tonality has just changed and i don't think you know and and, and let's the, in all fairness it was even changing then because the original script was Kevin leading in and out the story, and it was focused more on the, the friendships and the, the friendship and and just the through line and the and the emotional backbone of the story and the coming of age part of it. Um, 
And it was only like right as we were about to shoot it that they flopped it and put Jim as the opener and closer yep. and decided to focus more on the comedy, which in my mind really worked on the first one. If you notice, Kevin has the most screen time because it was his story. Well, by the time you get to the third film, yeah, you're in like two minutes worth of film. For I have that. 17 lines of dialogue really? in the third film. Not I'm, that I was counting. I'm not just saying this because you're here. I don't think the third one worked for me. No, the third like, one was the was first two. I think were amazing. Favorite. The third was the least of the whole four. Was it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was my least favorite of uh, of all of them for sure. I mean, the whole flip flop of you know Sean and Eddie or Stifler yeah. and Finch yeah. doing that whole thing was completely outlandish. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it was almost like yeah. That's were... when it became Will Ferrell over the top kind of comedy. But that's what was that... Jesse Dillon was going for with uh, the gay dance off scene in the well, club just the, the, and he, he wanted it to be like you know a, a an a ben, old school a, a ben stiller like comedy yeah yep. he wanted it to be like ben stiller and owen wilson yeah you know and, and that's what i'm saying is that even in 99 it was starting to shift out of the you know let's focus on the emotional to let's focus on the comedic aspect and ham it up yeah yeah and then from there it, it, it went farther i mean you know judd apatow came in and and Seth Rogen and, you know, just like really went to like the outlandish. Don't get me wrong. I love watching those films. I've seen them all and yeah. seen them in the theater. Well, you got and to I do one as well. The Franco film, Zeroville. Uh, yeah, we don't need to talk about that. <laughs> okay. I mean, it was great that I got to play Martin Scorsese, but the film, I mean, I'm only in like a tiny scene. Where I mean, it's, all the, scene. it's the 70s directors, yeah. Lucas Spielberg. And Ed. I mean, if we were there. I was there for like like a few hours it was it took me longer in the hair and makeup trailer getting <laughs> my beard on than it did to shoot the scene um and the film was widely panned so yeah thank god i'm barely in it yeah so we don't need to talk about that one <laughs> yeah but backtracking um you felt like at that point in time it was becoming more let's go loud let's go big let's go over the top and right. you, you could feel that change happening for sure in the moment could you yeah but i mean i wasn't going to try to play into that because that's yeah. my my strong point is drama and that's where i'm finally getting back to my roots and what i want to to do as an actor well you got to do around the time of american pie you got to kind of branch out um with the rules of attraction which i just watched for the first time the other day i'd never seen it um a wild kind of very stylistic um obviously it's a brett easton L what's the guy's name Brett Brady Easton St. Ellis adaptation yeah. yes by Roger Avery who wrote Pulp Fiction with Tarantino yeah um, and he did Killing Zoe as well yeah um, so you've got pedigree right there you've got James Van Der Beek who was obviously Dawson at that point well and the whole cast is like the, a WB's Jessica Biel dream and, you know it's all like the you know these like TV stars yeah yeah and, and you know you got like uh, yeah like you said Jessica Biel and uh, Fred Savage is in there, and and it's um, just drugs and carnage. A very tonally different film to American Pie. Did it come out just after the second American Pie film? Yeah, was it around that. It time? was around that time. I did like that was a busy year where I shot uh, in in two thousand one. I shot American Pie two, Rules of Attraction, Stealing Sinatra, and uh, um, uh, Halloween Resurrection. Wow. I think like all in the same year. It was like or a year period of time. It was crazy. I want to talk to you about stealing Sinatra in a bit, but let's go back to Rules of Attraction and working on that set. What was Roger Avery like to work with? And did you get to kind of understand the dynamic between him and Tarantino? 
because was that a friendship that started out kind of strong and then went south and well was there a feeling like he had something to prove no no i mean no. he they they worked at a video store together yeah and that's where they co-wrote pulp fiction right in their right. days and then you know i mean they're like he had great stories about you know being in there and you know guys would bring in like a an eight ball and they'd be like free movie rentals for a week for you. Uh, and, and I think, you know, at the time he didn't even really understand that things were shot on 35 millimeter. They, you know, cause they worked in this video store and neither one of them really understood that, uh, you know, out the gate. I mean, obviously they learned it cause they were studying all these movies. Yeah. But I mean, Roger Avery wrote the John Travolta, Samuel L. Jackson storyline of Pulp Fiction. And you can see that clearly since since that point that Tarantino's style went to like he wrote the whole Bruce Willis you know kind of thing more they, fantastical fantastical and the S and M and like it gets into like the really you know uber violent I mean granted you know it's obviously vastly violent when they accidentally blow the guy's head off in the car yeah that's that's still Roger yeah yeah, yeah. but but Roger has a different tonality it's not as fantastical it's yeah. it's more based in reality. Um, and I think that their their major falling out happened with True Romance. Okay, uh, I that's my favorite film of all time. Please divulge anything you can. Well, the 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 story. Goes, I know that he wrote Natural Born Killers and True Romance, and then used the money from those two scripts to make Reservoir Dogs. Right? Is that kind of how it happened? I'm not sure of, of Tarantino's thing. I'm I'm only speaking of the falling out of Tarantino and. and Did he Roger basically Avery. just write Roger Avery out? No, he couldn't come up with the ending for True Romance, and so he promised Roger that he would let him direct True Romance if he wrote the ending for him. Right. So Roger wrote him the ending, and then Tarantino didn't keep his promise. Right. And that's the basis of their entire falling out. And I kind of think fair enough. What right. do you think? Yeah, I mean, yeah. Would you, what would you do if, you know... I mean, you love True Romance, right? I love it. It's my favorite film of I all mean, time. How How is it possible that someone could ask a friend hey, help me finish this thing and I'll give you something in return, takes what he gets and then says, screw you. That's, That's I mean, cold. at least at least at some point you'd say, hey, let me make it up to you. I'm sorry I did that. I was just trying to like, you know, get ahead. But from there, it was just a direct break. Yeah. But the flip side to that is that I think Tony Scott's style adds a very glossy, romantic, really cool feel to that film. Sure. Right? And it would have been a totally different film if Tarantino would have made it. Well, you and mean, I'm kind of glad if, he did You mean if Roger Avery directed it? Or Tarantino. Right. Anyone other than Tony Scott, I think, he really gives that film, again, a heart. And I think the Clarence and Alabama love story, although there's these fantastical, violent, crazy details there, at the right. heart of that story, you totally buy into the affection that these two characters have for each other and you're rooting for them. Right through the journey um so did but, but working with roger was was incredible um i actually uh cool guy yeah i auditioned for um a different role in the film um and he didn't think that i looked the the right way for that role um so he called me and said hey listen i know you know you you wanted this character and so I totally understand if you want to say no, would you consider playing this role? And I said, yes, of course. Because in my mind, you know, getting to work with him, any size role was a great opportunity. Um, and so it was one of those crazy things where he, it was my first time playing with dramatic improv on camera. I'd done it in class. It was part of like my repertoire and my techniques, but 
to actually pull off dramatic improv is a different standpoint while the camera's rolling. And there's a whole crew around you and yeah, but that on. was like, that yeah. was his whole thing. He would tell me one thing and say, don't tell James. And then he would tell Vanderbeek another thing and he would tell him, don't tell Tom. And then we do the rehearsal as scripted. And then when the first take would go, then all hell would break loose. And we would do the things that Roger told us to do and it would change the scene and it would be completely natural. All the fear and everything and the the you know it's like organized chaos yeah yeah and it, that that's the feel of the film isn't it right um i read that brett easton ellis is most fond of that film out of all the adaptations that have been done even american psycho he's like that film for me captures the spirit of the book the most we almost had christian bale reprise patrick bateman because patrick james bateman. vanderbeek's character is his brother right right that's crazy. Yeah, he was he was unfortunately shooting something else at the time, and the the dates couldn't work out. But he had agreed to do it for Roger, and then wasn't available. What was it like working with James? Was he cool? Was he like a very yeah gifted actor? Did you feel like you and him could kind of you know create the, pretty magical moments together working on that film? Yeah, I mean the 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 majority of my stuff. I mean, obviously, I had the big like drug raid with him and Clifton Collins Jr. Yeah. Uh, and then my other scenes were with Ian Summerholder. I mean, really, for me, it was it was all just about like trusting the hands of like Roger Avery because he was the mastermind behind it, and he would just pull stuff. You never knew what was going to happen when the camera was rolling to get for him to get you know within reason outside of like I mean I remember at one point uh, when I I knock on the door to the drug house. Mm-hmm. Uh, Roger had James or Roger had. Clifton Collins Jr. answered the door with the gun pointed at my head. Like, and I didn't know that was going to happen. Uh, He's brilliant in that film. He's yeah. unhinged. Yeah. <laughs> he uh, he was definitely channeling Samuel L. Jackson for sure. Um, All the European stuff I was reading that Roger just funded himself as well, right? He just went around the world with a video camera just... Oh, the all the stuff with Kip Perdue. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, they just went on like a... I don't even know. And he like was apparently in character journey. the whole time. Just Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a crazy story. I want to talk to you about, I watched the film today at your suggestion. Uh, please give, right? Okay. Um, very Woody Allen-esque. Very American, East Coast, indie feel. Um, some amazing actors in there. List off some of the names in there. I've got them written down here because there's so many. Yeah, well, I mean, the, the main ones I play... Uh, Catherine Keener. Catherine Keener, which she is She is like, incredible. Yeah. Well, and she's kind of the uh, the the go-to for uh, Nicole Holofcener, the writer-director of the film. Right. They've worked together quite a lot. Uh, Oliver Platt's in the film. Amanda He's so Pete. good. He's so uh, good. And then I play and who's uh, the Rebecca guy that, Hall's love interest. Who's the dude that's in Buffalo 66 and loads of independent films? Oh, um... Uh, Kevin Corrigan. Yes, Kevin Corrigan. Yeah. Every light like, scene, there's a new kind of indie superstar that yeah. turns up. And you're well, just like, wow. That's it, what happens when you shoot in, in it, New York. Who's your love interest as well? What's her name? Uh, Rebecca Jess, Hall. Rebecca Hall. Yeah. Incredible Which, as well. Yeah, I had, I, I'm trying to think if she had done even the prestige at that point. I'm not sure. With uh, with Christian Bale and... Uh, she's done so many great films and, since. Yeah, and Hugh been Jackman. So, yeah. so great in everything. Yeah, she's she's phenomenal. And, you know, and, and she's doing an American accent, like, flawlessly. 
Uh, and and she's not quite that much taller than me. <laughs> there were a lot of scenes. A lot of jokes about he's too short. He's yeah. too short. There's, there's a lot of scenes where they put her on an Apple box. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah, just to like really sell the whole thing. Because Nicole Hall of Center kept like trying to find short actors, but she often thought that their arms were really short. <laughs> so she kind of like let me get away with a couple of inches. I was a little too tall for the role, but right, she, right, she right. made it work. <laughs> with Apple boxes. Yeah, incredible. Apple boxes. Was that a very different experience to a lot of the Hollywood, LA, West Coast sets? Yeah. Was it a completely different feel? Completely different feel. I think it's, it's quite honestly... Uh, one of my most honest performances, uh, and when I say when I say that, it was it was really the idea in that particular film to peel away any pretense of acting and to just be, and that's what I think gives it that you know, like you you said that Woody Allen kind of feel is that everyone is just very relaxed, yeah, and just sort of present. And it's an East Coast feel, isn't it? Yeah. It's so interesting to me because there's such a distinct difference between these kind of indie West Coast films and the indie East Coast films, like a Tarantino and a Jarmusch, for instance. Right. Obviously, Tarantino is no longer indie, but do you know, it's just such a different sensibility, isn't it? Do you think it stems from the school of both acting and filmmaking and how they differ? And you think it's more about the stage element in the East Coast and people are a lot more perhaps theater trained and what what do you think it is or is it just the the geographical sociological think, yeah it's a little bit between. it's a little bit of that i mean i think you know i i have my weather theory between the differences of la and new york right uh, it's cold ever, so everyone's in a rush and no 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 it's uh <laughs> it's it's in la in in los angeles the weather's typically very good all of the time of course yeah so no, that's what i mean in new york it's you cold become, so you become very full of yourself like you have a false sense of control right uh, almost like a uh, a god complex, mm-hmm. uh, and 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 therefore everything's sort of okay. And then you'll sort of talk about someone behind their back because everything's like it's okay face to face. In New York, you're reminded that God exists because He's dumping on you with the weather yep. and just you know reminding you that you're not in control. And so therefore, it creates a more honest nature where. People are like, I don't have time for this. I either like you, and if I like you, I'll treat you well. And if I don't like you, I'll let you know, and you'll know what you're going to get right now. Yeah. And that's, to me, the main difference between the West Coast and the East Coast. That's my weather theory. I just did a tour with Zach Wilde, and his personal security guard is this ex-NYPD homicide detective, as East Coast as they come, and so funny. And I've, I'd never met anyone like him before because most of the Americans that I know are west coast people from california and places like that and getting to spend time with a proper like new yorker i was like i've got to go to that city i've never been you've never been in I've new york i've never been to new oh, york dude i need to go it's uh it's it's an experience it was probably only like when the iphone came out that i finally wasn't scared to death of new york <laughs> because when the iphone came out then i could figure out the uh transit system yeah yeah yeah, yeah. i can't tell you how many times i got on like the subway going the wrong direction for miles and then wake up where the fuck am I? Right. Well, you'd end up in Queens and yeah, you're yeah. like, ah, or you'd end up in, you know, the Bronx or you'd end up in, you know, whatever it is. You just end up in the wrong spot and then you'd, you'd exit out of the train and you're like, crap, where am I? So the iPhone made New York less daunting for me. Were you born in LA? Pretty much. Yeah. So the West Coast has always been yeah, I was your born... spiritual home, if not your geographical. Yeah. I was born in Vegas, 
lived in Northern California and then moved to LA when I was about six. Vegas. Wow. Yeah. Do you but go I, back I, there often? You got an, have you got an affinity for Vegas? Have you still got a lot of family there? I have family there, so I have an affinity for it. My, my brain was really formed in Northern California, in right. Santa Cruz. Uh, I think that's where my my sort of cadence of life mm-hmm. comes from in that more laid back sense. I can see that. Uh, I want to talk to you about one more project before we go and have a beer. Frank Sinatra Jr. Yes. Right. So I didn't know about this story at all. Stealing Sinatra is a, you know, a film about the real life kidnapping event, which took place where he was what? He wasn't even a kid. He was like 18, 19 he was years 18, old. 19. It was 1963. And he was kidnapped by a few guys and held to ransom basically by, you know, we've got your kid, give us some money and then you can have him back. What a mental story. Yeah. Uh, real life. Well, the crazy part about it too, is that, uh, because he, of his age, after it happened, um, the press, like some, some false witness came forward and said that it was all a press stunt and destroyed Frank Jr.'s career. Really? Wow. So the the craziest thing, and and I and so I you know, had the trauma of the event, and then the the aftermath. That the followed. real trauma was the aftermath. Yeah, yeah because the shame, oh, the, the total shame, and then and then the question of like, what did his dad think? Did his dad think it was a publicity stunt, or did you know what I mean? Like, and the effect that that had on their relationship. Oh, yeah, totally. Man. I mean, and there was there's a lot. And it's it's my connection to that family is kind of odd too, because Frank, uh, my grandfather was a stand up comedian on my dad's side. And he used to open for Frank Sr. and for Frank Jr. Wow. Um, so, What were you telling me about your great uncle as well? He was a famous musician. Yeah. Uh, so, so it's in the blood, dude, isn't it? Yeah, it's it in is. in the blood. He was a, a famous uh, close-up magician. He, did, uh, he wrote the very first book on close-up magic in 1954. So he was a, a big mover and a shaker in that he, world. He, uh, he's notated. He's called the magician who fools magicians because... He actually pulled a card trick over on Houdini. Wow! In a card shop in New York. Well, that's some epic lineage, right yeah. there, my friend. It's in the blood. Yeah. So, how was it? Was it William H Macy and David Arquette were the yes. two kidnappers? What were those dudes like to work? I mean, William H Macy is one of the greatest actors in the world. I think David yeah. Arquette seems like just one of the coolest humans in the world. Well, and it was directed by Ron Underwood, who directed City Slickers and Tremors. Oh, cool. Um, and so, yeah, the, the fun set then it was a fun set. Um, I learned a lot from William H. Macy. Actually, actually, uh, I remember specifically there was one scene. Um, if, if you said you just saw the film, yeah. 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 So the, it's the scene where I, I'm making my escape and I, I get to the door and, you know, I, I basically make my threat and then William H. Macy is like, cool. How about a cup of Joe first? Um, and so I was doing this scene and I must've done like 10 or 12 takes and Ron just could not get the performance out of me in this moment. He kept, you know, like just having me do it over and he would try different things. And I, I just wasn't nailing what he wanted. And I remember William H. Macy not trying to, you know, he he wasn't trying to like butt in and tell me how to do my job. But you know, after you see like this kid, I mean, I was a kid at the time. I was only about, you know, 21. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, he gave me like this such great suggestion and he just said you know there's uh in a bar fight there's two kinds of guys and there's like the one guy who he'll yell at you and threaten you and he'll turn red in the face but he's all bark and he's he's no bite and then there's the other guy who won't say a word who who give you the same threat but as he's telling you this he's turning white in the face 
and he's all bite and no bark. Mm. And he and he was like, in this moment, Ron was trying to get me to be the bite, not the bark. And when he told me that, it was I was able to kind of go to the outward and then understand that and, and internalize it, and then I nailed the next take. Didn't he win an award for his role in that film? Or I don't know if he won in that film. Uh, I'm not sure. He's, I'd have to, he's I'd such, have to check he's that. Just one of those, like, because he's very physically, you know, he's not like a big, intense, powerful kind of in-your-face performer. It's the subtleties, isn't it? Well, and, and there's a real sadness. There's a real innate pain to so many of the great roles that he's done. He um, he surprised me, actually. I remember we were doing the film, and, you know, I have a pretty good memory, so I can memorize my lines fairly quickly. So it's just always something that I've kind of had on my side. And I remember his uh, assistant came to my trailer and knocked on and said, Mr. Macy would like to rehearse with you for this scene. And I and would you come over in 20 minutes? Sure, oh, that'd be great. So go over his trailer, and uh, we read the scene like once, twice, three times, five times, six, seven times. And then we've done this thing about 10 times. And, and then William says, uh, or Bill says, uh, oh, I'm so sorry. Do you mind if we just do it a few more times? And it was in that moment that I was like, oh man, he's not great because he's just innately great. He's still working at it. Yeah. And I, I learned a valuable lesson again from, you know, another great actor that, you know, just because you can go out there and nail it and, you know, get a couple of rehearsals in and go do it, you can kind of go past that point and find more depth, which is what he does by just like really working that. And you would think, you know, someone that does great, you're like, oh, they don't have to try as hard. It's easy for them. But it, he tried harder. That's a beautiful lesson. Yeah, it's great to see you. It's yeah, great man. to catch up, dude. This and we, has been amazing. We, we've got a uh, we've got a couple of events which we can uh, you know reconnect with in that sense as well. Um, and obviously, we're going to go and get drunk tonight. So yeah, I think but I'm going to I think I'm going to try to squeeze in my uh, <clears throat> new single uh, during my propaganda DJ set. Are you going to drop it? Are you going to be doing a full record? Or are you just promoting this new song at the, at the moment? I think I'm doing. I have the next single kind of like locked up. I'm just trying to finish the artwork for it. Um, but it's all mixed and mastered and ready to rock. I think it's the best thing um, you've done. Well, I mean, let's hear well. the next one. The next yeah. one kind of ha- sounds like the laws. Okay. Uh, so pulling pulling from my UK roots, especially since Johnny Lucas is producing the uh, the songs. Uh, my idea is I'm playing around with with releasing singles this year. You know, everyone keeps saying the album is dead. It's all about the singles anyway. So my idea is I'm going to just drop a bunch of singles until I've compiled enough. And then I'll kind of pull them all together into an album. Well, ultimately, I think that now people only make albums to promote a tour. Well, and that's so the only reason why I make albums is so I can tour. If that's the case, then why not just do a single and do maybe smaller runs and then just more tours? That's what I'm and, doing. You know, because nobody could put out 12 albums in a year. Right. But you could put out 10 to 12 singles in a year and do a couple of runs around each one. And you know, the the crazy thing is I was going to drop a single every month. Yeah, and do that seven inch of the it's month. A little bit, it's a little bit daunting to get through the promotional side of it. Similar to how I would drop an album and I went from working them from like a year to working them for two years to now like three years. I'll work an album cycle as an independent musician for two, three years. Yep. So I feel like I'm going to work the, each single for about two, three months 
So that's going to probably be the the sort of the format. The rollout. So that maybe I'll only release four or five singles this year. But hey, I haven't released anything since 2017. So yeah, it's been at, a least I'll, at least I'll put out four singles this year. Because you have all the connections and the hookups, are you somebody who would like to and perhaps have done and are looking to do more of getting films, um, sorry, songs in films? Yeah, because yeah. Because that's uh, obviously a great platform for so many artists now, I think, because of the decrease in album sales is a lot of musicians now can get a song in a film and then that can fund like, you know, the recording of a whole record, for instance, or can launch a career. Well, I think it can really uh, launch the, you know, the, the song or the career of the artist. I mean, look at this, the, 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 the synergy between pop punk and American Pie. Of course. I you mean, know. those soundtracks must have sold millions of units, right? Yeah, they're, but they're hand in hand. People think of pop punk and they think American Pie or vice yeah, versa. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So... Didn't you have one of your songs in the soundtrack to the second film? Was it the second film or the no, wedding? No, no, it was Reunion, the it fourth was, one. It was Reunion, was yeah, it? Yeah, it took took me a while. It did it. it took, you're like, come on, guys, right? This is number four. I kept trying to, you know. Did, did you try from the second one? Oh, I tried from the first <laughs> one. You? Are you kidding? <laughs> I mean, I tried on all of my. I kept getting a yes, but then the music supervisor had his own thing in mind. Yeah. And would just kind of, you know, kibosh the idea each time till finally I just played a live show. The live show got me the song in the fourth one. Nice. Not they ask. I didn't ask. I just played the show, and then they asked me. Right on. There you go. So we should talk about that finally before we go. The reunion film. Um, was it like a 10-year gap? 13. 13-year gap. From the first. So I guess 10 from the, 10 from the third. 10 from American Pie 3 wedding. Yeah. So are you guys in touch during that time? Do you maintain relationships? Because I've spoke to a lot of actors that have worked in these kind of projects that go on over many years, and it's quite a unique situation, I think, because you grow up together, you come through together, um, and often I find that people do remain personally in touch. Did you guys maintain and... Yeah, I mean, not to the point of like... Nurture we don't, those friendships in the intermittent years or... We don't have like our own little reunions. Got a WhatsApp group or anything. <laughs> no, I, I've, I've created a couple of groups when I've been trying to get people together for, you know, an event or yeah, something yeah. or, uh, or you know, now I've done Comic-Cons with Shannon and Tara and Mina. Uh, obviously got this one coming up uh, in Liverpool with uh, Shannon and Tara and Chris Klein, who's now doing his first ever... Um, and there was a, there was a moment where Jason was going to come, but he's busy working. Uh, Eddie almost was going to come, but he pretty much will only go where Jason goes. Really? When was the last time all of you were in a room together? Uh, you know, I missed that, that last reunion. There was, uh, I was actually playing a show in Philly right. and they did that entertainment tonight reunion. It was like, I think Natasha, Tara, Jason, Chris, Sean, and Eddie. I think, and, and Allison. Um, so I missed that one. But, you know, got to work. You have got to work, and you can't dine out on the past, of course, you right. know, because if you do, then you're, you're stagnant and you're not moving forward. But Well, that's that's where, like, I, I are understand. You proud, are you proud of your involvement in that franchise and that project? Oh, for sure, and... for sure. But I am definitely focused on on the future. I mean, I still, I don't mind doing, you know, Comic-Con events and 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 talking about those films. But I also do those things so I can talk about the new projects. What's going on here right now? Yeah, because yeah, that's that, that's probably the number one question that I get at 
you know, special events is, oh, well, what are you working on now? Because <laughs> what have you been doing since American Pie? <laughs> right. Well, it, well what's, it's kind of like what's coming up next, because unless you have like a Marvel movie that's being rammed down your throat. Yeah. You know, it's a big world. There's a lot of entertainment right now. Do you find it's hard for the film industry in the same way that it is for the music industry because there is so much white noise to fight through? Like, is promoting films, if you're not, as you say, a big budget Hollywood blockbuster, is it a, a hustle? Is it a struggle? Is yeah, it I mean, it's, it's trying to find the audience, and it's it's a challenge for sure. But I mean, I think that challenges exist on all fronts for any size budget, and always have. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's 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 a freedom with independent where you have more control, and then in the studio world, you lose that freedom for the sake of you know distribution, because mm-hmm. now you've got someone telling you, oh no, you can't do it that way. You got to do it this way. Yep. Versus the independent, you get to do whatever you want. And of course, you want as many people to see the film as possible. So sometimes do you have to make those concessions to ultimately get the film out to a wider audience and see that as part of the greater goal? Uh, I it's don't know. Struggle, I mean, isn't it? If, you, if you play to the audience, then you're never really going to go anywhere, in my opinion. Amen. Yeah. Because... I think it's all like even this new single. I didn't. I used to write songs to like try to get on the radio. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now I don't care. Yeah. Cool. Someone wants to play it. They want to play it on the radio. They want to play it on a podcast. They don't want to play it. I don't care. Like, I'm just going to write something that I think is good, that I enjoy listening to, and it will find whatever audience it will be, whether it's five people, 50 people, 5,000, whatever. It doesn't matter because. I'm all about doing the live show because the live experience is the thing That's the best. that you, you can't ever replace. The live show will never go away. What's your favorite live gig you've ever done? You know, I just I I was just talking about Have this. Have you ever recently. played at the Wrigley Stadium sort of Chicago Cubs games? Has that no, been... we've talked about it. It's um, gotta happen, surely. Yeah, they come out, do an opening pitch. It there was a time a about like ten years ago where there was a talk about it, but then when the city ordinances change their rules, they can only have so many concerts. Right. Um, so I'm not sure. In, unless I do become the next Foo Fighters, I may not have the chance. Or if I jam with the Foo Fighters the next time they play at Wrigley. Then I've, I've heard you do Foo Fighters on more than one occasion. You I do do, one, do the songs very well. One day Dave Grohl is going to send me a big old invoice for how many times I've played <laughs> his Everlong, music. Yeah, exactly. That's the go-to. Uh, so... Yeah, favorite gig ever, and we'll favorite end on that gig. note. Um, you know, my favorite gig was actually the smallest gig I've ever played. So they're often the best. Right, yeah. so, you know, um, my first gig was the largest gig. It was like, you know, 6,000 people when I was like 16 years old. But my favorite gig of all time was 2011 in Germany on a Sunday. Um, the It was a music house. And uh, the owner of the music house who lived upstairs and the bar was downstairs was really grouchy when we got there. And he, you know, was part of the writer that he made us dinner and he shows us the newspaper and he, sh- he turns on the radio and there's an advertisement with my song playing. And he is showing me these posters that he got printed and he's like telling me about all this advertisement that he did. And he's angry because he's only got four pre-sales. And I'm like, I'm sorry, I guess, you know, Sunday's not a good day. It's Sunday <laughs> roast, you know. It's not a good day to have a concert in, like, the middle of nowhere, Germany. And so uh, gig time comes around. We've done our sound check, and we've eaten our food. And and he, he comes into the back room to the green room, and he goes, so do you want to cancel? In a very German way. Yeah. 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 And, I'm, and I'm like, well, why? And he says, well, 
You've got four pre-sales, and there are four people here, and that's it. I was like, so they're the four people that bought the tickets? He says, yeah. I said, so they showed up. They want to see the show. And he goes, yeah. I said, well, then let's give them a show. And then he kind of stopped, and he looked at me a little differently. He expected that I was going to say, let's cancel it. So we go out there, and we put on the show. And at the end of the show, I, I bring like all four people together to the front table. I come off the stage and I jam an acoustic like Bruce Springsteen song right there. And it turns out that uh, one of the guys was this Russian guy. He had such a great time at the concert that he became an investor of the venue. And unbeknownst to me, the reason the guy was so angry is because his venue was going out of business. And he was doing everything that he could to bring people there, and it wasn't working, including with our show. And so this one show for these four people saved his business. That's like a Hollywood movie story. And then he, then he was like my best friend. So he went from being this you know, grouchy man that was angry with me to just like having like this love and respect. And then he was just like giving me gifts, and he made his own coffee and had his own like coffee plants with the berries and like got the seeds out and like gave me a bag of this and made his own jelly and he here you take this with you and it was just like it the evening turned around and that was my favorite show everybody loves a happy ending yeah dude i love you great to see you yeah man you thanks too, for man. a cool chat and uh let's go get a beer shall we you yeah. ready i'm Is ready it time it's time it's been one week since you looked at me cocked your head to the side and said i'm angry five days since you laughed at me saying get back together come back and see me three days the living room I realized it's all my fault But couldn't tell you Yesterday You'd forgiven me But it'll still be two days Till I say I'm sorry Hold it now I want to hoodwink Cause I make you stop think You'll think you're looking at Aquaman I summon fish to the dish Although I like the shallow Swiss I like the sushi Cause it's never touch a frying pan Hot like wasabi when I bust rhymes Big like Leanne rhymes Because I'm all about value Bird campers got the mad hits You try to match wits You try to hold me by the Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.